While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It's Thursday, August 4th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Breonna Taylor's story is a horror, a human rights violation, certainly an injustice. But what was justice? I understand the anguish and calls for justice, but the cops who actually fired the bullets that killed Breonna Taylor were not charged with murder and therefore not found guilty of any crime. As hard as this was to hear, it's probably the correct outcome. Just as we wouldn't want to try a U.S. Army infantryman told to enter a hostile home who then returns fire that he encountered in that home, we shouldn't have put the specific cops who killed Breonna Taylor behind bars. Reacting to the not guilty verdict of the only officer tried, an officer who wasn't even one of the ones who shot Breonna Taylor, protesters cried out. Here was Brandon McCormick at the time. Well, I think it's a slap in the face to everybody who believes in justice and goodness and rightness. Um, it's the, the least of the charges that you can imagine happening. It's a, it's a naming of the charges that don't even mention Breonna Taylor's name. It's not justice. It's not justice. It wasn't justice for Breonna Taylor, but a guilty verdict for any of the officers that actually killed her wouldn't have been justice either. Najee Ali, spokesman for the Taylor family lawyer Ben Crump, faulted local authorities. The charges should have been murder. Arrest the cops. All the cops should have been arrested. How can you burst into someone's home, fire at them, kill them, and not be charged with anything less than murder? He's right and he's wrong. Cops should have been charged, just not the ones who burst in the apartment. One of the ones who shot wantonly outside was charged. He was found not guilty. I took issue with that verdict at the time. The responsible parties in the death of Breonna Taylor, however, were the ones who ordered the cops to burst into that apartment, who signed the warrants, who were truly responsible for Breonna Taylor's death. And today, the Justice Department took the first step in delivering just that. Justice. Attorney General Merrick Garland brought federal charges against Kelly Goodlett, Joshua Jaynes, and Kyle Meany, two current, one former Louisville PD officers who are accused of falsifying information on a search warrant. Brent Hankinson, the one who fired wantonly into Taylor's apartment and also a neighboring apartment who was found not guilty locally, was charged with federal crimes. And this is justice, or at least the pathway to justice which isn't always satisfying and isn't always quick and is a lot different from vengeance. If convicted, the three officers who signed the warrants could each face 20 years behind bars. Hankinson could face life imprisonment and the calls for justice could be heard. On the show today, Kansas's abortion vote GOP stumble or seismic shift. But first, speaking of policing, the calls to defund have been rejected. The calls to reform have been enacted, some of them, but in a patchwork manner. But my next guest has studied policing and questions the efficacy and fairness of many of these ideas. Rafael Manguel with the Manhattan Institute has done a deep dive on policing statistics, narratives, and policy, and is out with a new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael Manguel up next.
Rafael Manguel is a senior fellow and head of research for policing and public safety at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. And let me tell you about our overlapping existences. Though Rafael is about a dozen years younger than I am, he grew up about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. He then moved to Long Island about three towns over from where I grew up. He's somewhat obsessed with New York crime and policing statistics, as am I, and we have come in fact, to many of the same conclusions. So it might be weird, and maybe I'll prepare Raphael by saying this interview might be a bunch of disagreement, but I have to say we mostly agree on the big things. Raphael's written a new book called Criminal Injustice. The in is in parentheses, so I don't know whether to say it first or last, but I'll just say it like that. Criminal Injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts the most. Raphael, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me on. Last question first, who it hurts the most is clearly, in your estimation, black communities, right? That's right. That's right. Um, You know, we often talk about crime in kind of national terms, citywide terms, you know, statewide terms, countywide terms. And, you know, it's an understandable colloquialism. It makes it easier to, to, to kind of have the conversation on terms that we can all kind of digest. But what that kind of framing clouds is that crime is a very hyper-concentrated phenomenon. It's not something that we all experience equally. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the communities that we grew up in in Long Island. Crime was a very different story there than it was in, you know, the Brooklyn neighborhoods that I grew up around in the 1990s. Even Park yeah. Slope was yeah. not uh, particularly great in the 1980s and 90s. And I'll throw something. Another another common data point. Your dad worked in the 67th precinct, which is he right did. down the block from where I live. So although he wouldn't police my block or he wouldn't have policed my block, if I lived two or three blocks over, he would have. That's right. That's right. So, you know, it, it, it's... Like I said, it's 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 not something that we all experience equally, and I think we don't do enough as a society to kind of appreciate the extent to which crime is a very discrete problem for certain communities and not much of a problem for other communities, specifically when you talk about violent crime, right? So in New York, um, I, as I say in the book, a, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every year for which we have data, this is going back to at least 2008. A minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are males. Last year, I think it was over 96%, which, you know, at that point, it might as well be 100. It's one of the starkest, most persistent racial disparities in the criminal justice data that you'll ever find. Um, And it doesn't get nearly enough attention. Neither does the fact that in New York City, about 3.5% of street segments see about 50% of all crime. If we're deploying police resources to the places that have the biggest crime problems, that Right off the bat, police are going to interact much more with the people living in those communities than they will with people living in communities with much lower crime problems. And if you have an overrepresentation of demographic groups in those areas, then that's going to be reflected in the data. Right. So just to uh, flesh out some of these statistics, the vast majority, by vast majority, it's almost 100% of shooting victims, black and Hispanic in New York. We should note that in New York City, if you had the white and Asian population, that's about 55%. So it is not the case that we're even a black and Hispanic majority city, just to underline how stark that statistic is. But what I hear you saying there is a rebuttal, a pre-buttal to the prevalent notion that the amount of uh, police interdiction with the black community is disproportionate to the white community. Shootings of uh, black people by police, killings of black people by police are disproportionate to their population, to their representation in the population. But you're making the point that you can't look at purely 
the representation, the population, you have to look at in some way how likely a black person or Hispanic person, but mostly a black person in the ways this is talked about, how likely they are to be involved in crime. However, even if I've always, uh, this has always been a stumbling block, even if it is true that black people, African-Americans are much greater disproportionately victims of crime and disproportionately uh, perpetrators of crime and violent crime. That doesn't necessarily perfectly map onto the perceived likelihood that they will be involved in crime. So there is still a disconnect. While it's true, and I agree, that you can't just say, oh, oh, black people are three times as likely to be stopped by cops if you look at their representation in the population. You can't then, I think, just jump to uh, the prevalence of uh, African-American murderers to say that should be the stop rate, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and and also, you know, it's important to just take a step back and note that it's not, you know, the entire black community that's bearing the brunt of the costs associated with a particular enforcement program, right? Most black people aren't getting, you know, stopped and frisked or arrested. The vast majority of people, even in high crime, uh, uh, black and brown communities are law abiding citizens. And if you look at, you know, things like police stops, they tend to be concentrated in and around the the, the crime hotspots um, that, that have the most criminal activity, which is, you know, in a lot of cities, as I mentioned, you know, just 3.5% of street segments in New York are very, very small areas. We're not talking about entire neighborhoods. We're not even talking about entire blocks. We're talking about particular intersections, places where police have reason to believe, you know, there there's a lot of drug activity or there's been a pattern of robberies. Um, you know, so uh, one of the things that uh, I, I think has been really positive about the the introduction of of complex data into policing decisions is that it's allowed police to be more precise in how they deploy resources that, you know, when when used can can have, you know, a, a really harsh effect on communities, right? It's not it's not a pleasant experience to be pulled over, stopped, searched. I mean, you know, I I'm not a criminal. I've never, you know, committed any kind of serious crime. Um, but, it, you know, my dad was a cop. Even still, when I get pulled over, I find myself getting a little nervous, right? It's, yeah. it's it's not a particularly pleasant experience. But, you know, what data has allowed police to do is be much more precise in how they deploy those those tools and, and, and who has those negative experiences, which I think has made things better. One of the things that really frustrates me about the sort of rhetorical posture of our criminal justice debate and our policing debate in particular is the fact that police don't really get much credit as an institution for getting so much better over the decades, right? I mean, when it comes to things Things like stop and frisk, right? I mean, we saw, you know, a huge decline in the number of reported stops, um, you know, since since the sort of peak time of around 2011. Uh, didn't really see that reflected in the sort of uh, uh, protest uh, after uh, 2020 here in New York City. Well, uh, to be ni- fair, driving those uh, decline in stops was a court order claiming sure. it was unconstitutional. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. how much back padding the police should get for, you know, not violating the Constitution. Sure. You know, but, you know, look, they, they, the, 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 the question is, is, you know, are the outputs changing in the direction that reformers wanted them to change? And I think on mm-hmm. that front, it, the, the answer is absolutely yes. And same thing on use of force, right? In 1971, when the NYPD started keeping track, they shot more than 220 people that year. Uh, you know, that number is down to like the low 20s. I think they kill less than 10 a year. I mean, that's a massive the gun, improvement. The gun discharge statistics, because they weren't they weren't good shots, right? So right. if you go to the 70s, the total number of gun discharge statistics was, you know, I think some years it was it was touching a thousand. 
happened. Yeah. And and they they count, the NYPD counts every time a gun is discharged and it's in the dozens. Yeah. And also, yeah, I would note the NYPD doesn't have a particularly high hit rate uh, when, when they fire their weapons. I suspect that part of that has to do with uh, the fact that the NYPD artificially weights their their triggers on service weapons. So typically, you know, a firearm like a Glock 19, which is one of the standard issue firearm choices for the NYPD, that comes with a standard trigger weight of about five pounds. So it takes about five pounds of pressure to pull the trigger. They modify those for, for the cops and make them 12 pounds. Um, That's good, I think, right? You, you would think, right? <laughs> the idea was that it's supposed to sort of give people a, a, another yeah. split second to make a choice whether or not to shoot. But it also makes it very, very difficult to be accurate under pressure because when you have to pull that much harder, you're more likely to jerk the firearm. And it's one of the reasons I think that the NYPD has such a low hit rate, particularly compared to departments that don't artificially weight their triggers. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So let's let's expand this out a little bit beyond New York. In the book, you look at certain neighborhoods, extremely high crime, high murder neighborhoods throughout the United States, a couple in St. Louis, the 9th and, 9th and 10th precinct of Detroit, Northwest Baltimore, uh, west side of Chicago. Four cities. You total the murders there. It's a tenth of all the murders of the entire countries of England and Germany. That's horrible and incredible. And if our politicians or public policy really grasp that, how would things change? How would things change if we began to define crime and murder as a, you know, specific census track problem 80 to 90% of the time? I think it would do a couple things. Um, I think it would reinforce this sense of urgency that I think is lacking right now in terms of addressing the violent crime problem in particular areas. But I also think, and I, you know, I wonder about this, I, I, I think it would also remind people just how safe they are, um, right? If you were randomly dropped somewhere in the United States, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're going to land somewhere with a murder rate of zero or very close to zero. Uh, if you repeat that experiment, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 times, uh, every once in a while, you're going to land in a place like West Garfield Park, Chicago, which has a murder rate of 131 per 100,000 compared to the national rate of about five and a half per 100,000. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that, the, to me, the most important reason to highlight how discreet this problem is and how concentrated it is, is I think to to allow for decisions about deployment of law enforcement resources uh, to be directed to their highest possible use, to their most effective possible use, right? I'm, I remember when sort of one of the central critiques of police was like, you know, they're not responsive enough to crime in low-income black communities, right? And you can hear it in rap music today or J. Cole lyrics where he's, you know, making jokes about how long it takes nine, uh, police to respond to 911 calls in white neighborhoods. And, you know, my, um, my, my touchstone would be public enemy and 911 is a joke in your town. So, you know, 10 right. years difference. There but you go. go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but 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 it's, a, it's still a very much a prevailing notion um, today. What I, I, I don't think people fully appreciate is the degree to which the deployment of law enforcement resources has shifted to reflect this reality. But the sort of lack of knowledge about just how concentrated crime is has really, I think, toxified our, our national debate about this because it, it, it causes people to not really understand the 
the disparities that that concentration produces in law enforcement statistics in in the proper context, right? And so when we see statistics like black overrepresentation among people arrested, among people prosecuted, among people uh, incarcerated, um, we're looking at those statistics in a vacuum and not really taking account of the fact that, hey, this is very much a function of police trying to protect the very, very small slice of American society that stands to be victimized the most by these sorts of offenses. And, you know, I, I don't think it can be understated just how beneficial those efforts have been over the years, right? There's there's a part of the book where I talk about, the, you know, the effect of the crime decline and how unevenly distributed the, the benefits were, right? So, you know, from between 1990 and 2014, the national homicide rate goes through the floor. I mean, it's just a, a massive, massive decrease. And, you know, in New York City, for example, we had 2,262 murders in in uh, 1990. You know, by, by 2014, I think we were down under 500. Right, so that's a massive improvement. Nationally, that decline added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man's life. Compared to the average white man, it added only 0.14 years of life expectancy. So for black men, the public health equivalent of the homicide decline, which was brought about in large part, though not entirely, in large part due to policing, incarceration, and smart criminal justice policy, the public health equivalent of that was was basically eliminating obesity altogether, according to one study. Um, and and so, you know, I think when we start to have the kind of conversation that we've been having since about 2010, but that's really intensified since 2020 in this country, where the sort of dominant narrative is pushing in the direction of eroding these sort of traditional institutions of law enforcement that brought about this safety gain, we're eschewing the benefits that 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 those institutions can bring, and that's going to disproportionately hurt, ironically, exactly the communities that a lot of reformers say they're standing up for. And, you know, that's one of the sort of main messages that I wanted to get across in the book, because I think people who are kind of pro-law enforcement or pro, you know, sort of traditional criminal justice apparatuses were characterized as not caring about these communities, as not caring about the costs associated with law enforcement. And it's like, no, we acknowledge that there are costs associated with these programs, but you have to look at the other side of the ledger. There are benefits associated with these programs, and those benefits are just as unequally distributed as the costs are. And, you know, when you look at, you know, what low-income black communities want, they don't say we want less policing. They say we want better policing, for sure. Right. Um, and, and they deserve it. And, and in large part, we've been moving in that direction over the decades. And again, I, I don't think that's something that's fully appreciated. But, you know, 81% of black Americans told Gallup last year that they want as much or more policing that they were currently getting, um, which, you know, I think often uh, gets left out of the conversation. Right. So a, a lot of activists and activists I've had on the show will say, inevitably say, well, it's a false choice. It's a false choice between safety and police brutality. Um it, it is true that it's a false choice. It's also the case that in these communities with high crime, even if they're addressed properly or much more properly than they were 40, 50 years ago, uh, it is at least not the perception, and I think to some extent the reality, that there isn't a divorce between brutality and safety, that the two always do I'm going to use the word seem, but uh, let me amend that. The two always do go together to some extent. And what could be done about that? Well, what can be done about that is you can improve policing in the ways that we have over the last 50 years. I mean, the institution of policing has been professionalized in in a really important way. Um, and that has brought about, I think, you know, massive benefits. Um, and, and so the other thing, though, I think we have to just kind of take a step back and realize that, like, 
Police brutality, while a major problem that is worthy of public attention that should be addressed, it's something that shouldn't ever happen, right? But it's going to, right? Policing is a human endeavor. Humans make mistakes. Mm -hmm. The question is, is can those instances like what we saw Derek Chauvin do to, to George Floyd on camera, do those instances characterize policing as an institution? I think the answer is very, very clearly no. And the, and the data speak to this, I think, overwhelmingly, right? If you look at police use of force rates, they are infinitesimal compared to what you would think they are if you were just a casual observer of the national debate. You know, I, I when I give public talks, I sometimes poll the audience. And I say, you know, how often do you think police use force in the context of making an arrest? And I usually get numbers between like 15% and like 60%. Uh, the reality is it's, it's less than 1% most of the time. Um, and, you know, uh, I was on uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah yesterday, and he was like, well, you know, these are police statistics. So, you know, maybe they're underreporting some of these things. And it's like, well, if that were the case, we would expect to see an incongruity between with between what police report as being the rate of of, of force and what citizens report, right? right. So the, the Bureau of Justice Statistics surveys citizens who've had contacts with the police every single year. And the rate at which those citizens report being subjected to force or the threat of force is basically identical to what police departments are reporting themselves. So given that that incongruity doesn't exist, I think we can actually trust what a lot of these studies are saying that are based on police data. And one of my favorite studies on these uh, on this topic looked at over a million calls for service made across three police departments, one in North Carolina, one in Arizona, and one in Louisiana. Those million calls for service uh, led to 114,000 uh, criminal arrests. In that entire data set, there is just one fatal police shooting captured. And in that entire 114,000 criminal arrests, police affected more than 99% of those arrests without the use of any force whatsoever. And in 98% of the cases in which they did use force, there was either zero or very mild injury to the suspect. So, you know, yes, it is true that use of force is a problem. Uh, when it goes too far, we should look for ways to minimize that to the extent that we can. But we also have to speak honestly about how much of a risk this actually is. So, in, you know, in 2018, I estimated that police officers fired their weapons a little over 3,000 times but they made 10.3 million arrests. So that's 0.03% of arrests if we assume that every shooting happened within the context of a separate arrest. Again, it's not to diminish the terrible cases where police do abuse their power and hurt people and take lives that shouldn't have been taken. Right? I, I am by no means an apologist for bad policing, nor am I on operating under the presumption that these institutions are perfect. But when we talk about the need to reform, the need to reduce police use of force, we have to start with the knowledge that police already get it right a really good percentage of the time. And by really good percentage of the time, I mean nearly every time. Right. So a couple things. One, you know, what polling an audience or what the public might think and the uh, miscomprehension, uh, the misapprehensions they might have, it doesn't really tell me much. If NASA polled the audience, they'd get totally disparate lengths to the moon. It doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't send a rocket up there. The national conversation, first of all, there are 10,000 national conversations going on. But I agree for especially during the summer of 2020 and before or after words like depolicing and decarceration as is on the cover of your book. Those were very much in the air. But I guess my question is not to think about um, correcting the worst arguments, but what do you do about the hard to ignore realities of, for instance, if what you just said to me 
about acknowledging and knowing how highly concentrated murder is in certain communities. As I heard your answer, it seems to me that it's unavoidable that something like what critics would call an occupation is inevitable, just more and more and more policing in those neighborhoods. Um, And so how do we get away from, as Nixon put it, and Chris Hayes borrowed from his book, the idea of the colony within the nation? How do we get away from the idea and reality that the way to solve this problem is massive police presence in the most hard-hit neighborhoods? I don't think we get away from that reality. What, What I do think we have to accept is that that reality can, over time, bring about a situation in which the presence and uh, of police becomes less and less necessary, right? New York, I think, is a really good example of this. In the year 2000, I think we had more than 13 precincts that were seeing more than 20 homicides a year. By the time that you know the, the stop and frisk litigation came to a close, I think it was only one precinct that was seeing more than 20 murders a year. When you get crime under control, you give communities the space to grow. You give them the time to become attractive investments to business people. Um, And those things over time fortify the community against crime in really important ways, right? As the just the physical built environment changes. You have a higher concentration of businesses. You have more people moving in, more foot traffic, more traffic density, right? It it becomes basically impossible now to do a drive-by in even the outer boroughs of New York City compared to what it was like in the 1980s, where you could drive through the South Bronx and there would be entire blocks with maybe one standing structure. So you heard a lot from Rafael Manguel about his fault finding with different ideas for reform. He backed it up with data, with good argumentation. But a big question remains, okay, if that doesn't work, if all these reforms aren't the way to go, if these criticisms aren't apt, what is the model for better policing and safer communities in America. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. And now the spiel. Ever since I started covering politics as surely as day follows night, or is it the other way around, night follows day? And is that a cliche north of the Arctic Circle? Okay, as surely as dogs follow the meat wagon, or teenage girls follow the Jonas Brothers online, what follows a special election or an off-year election is the analysis, is asking, have we just seen not just an election, but a sign, a harbinger, a canary, or possibly a canard? Two different types of birds. It was no different from Tuesday's election result in Kansas. It wasn't fracking that caused this earthquake, but the vote to keep abortion legal. And NBC's Chuck Todd was playing human seismometer. The midterm landscape changed seismically last night. And now everyone in American politics, from the White House to the State House, and every election in between is trying to determine where this is headed next. 41 to 59, Kansas. Kansas! Kansas voted to keep abortion legal, even if state polling shows that an equal number of citizens think that abortion should be legal in most cases as the ones who think it should be illegal in most cases. It's 49-49. What we saw, what Kansans saw after the Dobbs ruling What they saw was happening to women across the country, what they feared would happen to their own state, 
banning abortion in too many cases, forcing women into pregnancies that they didn't want, even if their health was in danger, Kansan spoke. As did pundits telling us how to interpret the speaking of Kansans. Here was Minka Brzezinski on yesterday's Morning Joe. Just as the woman on the set, (laughs) watch out. I mean, I'm surprised by Kansas, and I'm not surprised because women are not going to stand by idly and say, yeah, you can take away our rights. You can take away our personal rights. You can take away our sister's rights. You can take away our daughter's rights. Forget it. Watch out. And Kansas is your example this morning. She forgot nieces, aunts, and female cousins, but you get the point. And if you didn't, many other Democrats and activist pundits were there to tell you, This means big change. Here's former Planned Parenthood President Cecile Richards. These elections in November, uh, I expect this is going to energize our voters. This is going to energize people who do not vote in midterm elections. And that, to me, would be the biggest wake up for this, this, uh, uh, what we're seeing tonight in, in Kansas, is that people who were not expected to vote came out in droves. And I expect they're going to be back um, for the midterm elections. However, just because a vote for one issue was overwhelmingly supportive of what amounts to the Democrats' agenda on this issue doesn't mean it's the biggest issue. The economy will be the biggest issue. When a citizen is asked to choose between a Democratic member of the House or a Republican member of the House, that choice carries with it a lot more issues than abortion, no matter how important that voter thinks abortion is. If there were a similar state ballot measure called called inflation, voters would vote against it by a lot greater margin than 59 to 41. And polling does show that Republicans are seen as much better on inflation. So this, the following framing I'm going to play you from CBS News, may compel you to listen to the piece to come, but may not actually be as compelling to voters as is made out. Stephen Portnoy of CBS News Radio looks at the potential for major ripple effects in the midterms and beyond. But what do Republicans and conservatives think of this vote and what it says for the election? Republicans think inflation, economy, just anything other than abortion. I get this from listening to Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall, who just heard about the terrible loss for the pro-life side of the abortion debate. I think voters come November will be very focused on the cost of gasoline and groceries and, and, and rent. That's all I hear about. And other conservatives agree. Here's Washington Free Beacon editor-in-chief Eliana Johnson speaking on the Commentary podcast. Number one most important issue, including for Republican voters who voted, you know, in these rural counties uh, against repealing this constitutional amendment in Kansas that um, protected the right to abortion. But I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that there's just an enormous amount of wish casting on the part of uh democrats and their allies in the mainstream media who are getting the import uh and drawing the import of this wrong and drawing lessons from it that they should not be drawing if johnson is just acting as a pundit i think she's right she actually said a lot of the things i did about there being a lot other issues other than abortion and the choices next to candidates names aren't illegal under all circumstances legal in some But if Johnson were a strategist or if strategists were thinking too much like Johnson, I'd watch out. The abortion sentiment may not be dispositive, but it's really strong, stronger than we thought. And not just strong to the people who cared to begin with. Turnout means a lot 
in this case. And I'll mention another factor that augurs well for the Democrats generally. On gas, on the economy, on inflation, Democrats actually have something to say. You may not believe it, voters may trust Republicans more or just the natural inclination of yearning for a change, but Democrats do have programs. They do have talking points and strategies that can at least attempt to convince some voters to trust them or to not trust Republicans more than them. On abortions, Republicans are simply the party of anti-abortion. There is no policy agenda that they could put forth that speaks to the 60% who voted to keep abortion legal and says, we hear you. Here's how our concerns address and overlap with your concerns. This is not a case where there are competing claims as to who will address your abortion concerns better. Democrats favor legal abortion, Republicans are anti-abortion, and the public is not anti-abortion. There's not much Republicans can do about that other than change the subject. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pasca is a daughter, a wife, an aunt, a niece, a COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.